I think one thing that natural law does is that even though natural law doesn't depend upon belief in God, that's very important. People forget that. Natural law purports to be self-evident claims about reason and the nature of truth. But natural law also points to the reasonability of believing that there is a God. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard Sam Gregg, director of research here at the Acton Institute, speaking on his new book, The Essential Natural Law, and the importance natural law plays in our understanding of God, Western thought, and human flourishing. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Online is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Samuel Gregg, Research Director at the Acton Institute. He is the author of over a dozen books and innumerable articles on political economy, economic history, ethics and finance, and natural law theory. His most recent book is titled The Essential Natural Law, published by the Fraser Institute. Today, we'll be discussing natural law theory, what it is, what it isn't, its origins, and its implications. Sam, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Dan, thank you for having me on. It's great to be talking with you and to talk about natural law as well. Natural law is a big part of what we do here. Um, it makes up part of our core curriculum at Acton University. And one of the reasons we're so interested in it is that natural law looms very large in the history of ethics, economics, and law throughout Western civilization. Yet the very words themselves, natural and law, are used in a sense that's foreign to most modern people. Um, in the world of natural law theory, in what sense is it about nature and in what sense is it about law? Um, how, how are we to understand these things? Well, I think you just identified one of the biggest areas of confusion when it comes to natural law, or at least the phrase natural law. Because when we think of nature, typically today we think of things like human biology or the natural environment. And for other people, nat nature means things like instinct. Uh, now, when we talk about the phrase law, law is often seen in terms of uh, ideas about constraint. And there's an implicit positivist conception of what law is that often lies behind most people's thinking about the nature of law. And by positivism, I mean uh, that law is simply a fact. It's simply a social fact rather than something that has any normative or moral content. So uh, when I typically talk about natural law, I will th say things like, by nature, what is meant by nature is uh, the idea that uh, humans have reason, that what 
is distinctive about us as human beings, our nature, human nature, which makes us different from other species, is that we possess reason. Animals act according to instinct alone. They don't act on the basis of rational reflection. So nature in uh, it means reason in the context of natural law theory. So when we talk about natural law, we're talking about reason. The law part is much more a question of what is right. So it's not a question of what is a social fact. Law in natural law means what is right. And by right, we mean what's good, what is uh, what is appropriate for human beings, what is something that humans should do in moral terms, could they not do in moral terms. So another way of talking about natural law, which I think better reflects the phrase, the meaning of the phrase itself, is right reason. Right reason. Reasoning about what it is right and good and just and proper to do, to choose and to act. And maybe that's another thing about natural law we should mention. It's above all, it, it has implications, as you mentioned, right at the beginning, for law, uh, for ethics, for politics, for economics. But it's really a, an ethics of human action. That's what it's about. Because natural law involves deep reflection on human choice, human free will, free choice for the good, and our reason guiding our will towards the good. That, I think, is really the essence of what natural law is about. So when we use this phrase, it's right reason, reflecting upon what human beings should be choosing, freely choosing, and uh, thereby actually willing and making part of themselves. So that's why I think what the basic meaning of natural law is. And once you get beyond contemporary understandings of what about nature and about law, you start to see that it is really an ethics of human action. So when we're thinking through this, one one of the one of the sort of misconceptions that you identify in the book is the notion that everyone reasons towards the good in the same way. Or that um there are no conflicts in natural law thinking and among natural law theorists themselves. What are the ways, what are the ways that this is helpful in us reasoning towards the good? And what are the ways that, um, you know, while it might be helpful to that, it's no guarantee of the same conclusions um, and that it's an ongoing process of reflection. Um, what are, what are what are the what are the what are the things we we derive from natural law? How does this help us view the world and reason towards the good? And what are its limitations, um, particularly in dialogue with each other? Well, I think when it comes to natural law, it it, it implies, of course, that there are universal goods that all human beings can know because we all possess reason. So whatever culture we're in, whatever religion we belong to, whatever society we're in, even what historical epoch we're in, that these goods 
and therefore the opposite of those goods, the evils, can be universally known to everyone. So I think that's really important because natural law is decidedly not utilitarian. It's decidedly not consequentialist in the way that it thinks about the world. In other words, natural law is not about assessing the, all the known and unknown consequences of our actions and then on that basis of somehow weighing the good and the, the good consequences and bad consequences, then we arrive at a decision about what we do. No, natural law is, is actually very opposed to that way of thinking, which I think is pretty dominant actually in much of the West today, even if most people don't even know it. So there's a universal dimension to natural law. Now, but there's two things we need to keep in mind here. One is natural law is a developing tradition. By that, I don't mean that it goes back and then contradicts what's been said before. What I mean is that as human problems manifest themselves over time, natural law thinkers engage in discussion and debate among themselves about how to deal with any number of new problems. Uh, and they don't always arrive necessarily at the same conclusions. So natural law thinkers will typically say that there are moral absolutes which forbid us from doing certain actions. And those are summarized very much, I think, in the second tablet of the Decalogue, right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, etc. You may never do these things. Natural law is very insistent that you may never do evil that good as uh, no less than Rabbi Saul of Tarsus wrote uh, 2,000 years ago, right? So there's, there's that dimension, that that's the absolutist dimension. The moral absolutism of, of natural law shines through in the negative, the negative uh, thou shalt nots. But when it comes to what we ought to do, what we should do, the natural law acknowledges that there's a legitimate plurality of positions that are possible in lots and lots of of cases. So, for example, natural law will say, well, uh, family is a good thing. It's important to respect and honor your parents, etc. And that's a universal claim. It's not dependent upon, it's not dependent upon subject or who your parents are, or you've had a bad experience or whatever it happens to be. But the way we live out that good of family is really going to depend upon some very specific conditions. So, for example, the way we honor our parents is very different depending on how old we are, whether they're alive, whether they're dead. So, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of different ways in which natural law points to the fact that there are a range of prudential judgments that people can rightly arrive at and be confident that these are good judgments, even if they differ from the good judgments of other people. So in that sense, natural law uh, actually allows room for considerable pluralism when it comes to how we live the good. So it doesn't say you can dishonor your parents. That's not an option. But the way that you honor your parents is very different depending on all sorts of different factors that are very pertinent at one time and which may be pertinent at a different time. And on a wider scale, I think this has implications for things like how natural law thinks about things that the Acton Institute is very concerned about, such as the role of government in the economy, questions of wealth distribution, 
etc. So I think this is this is often missed when people think about natural law. They they don't often recognize that there's room for considerable uh, disagreement. And also, as I mentioned before, this this process of working things out of time. A classic example, of course, is the fact that when the peoples of Europe encountered the peoples of the New World, there was a huge debate within Europe at the time about were the peoples of the New World really human or not? And natural law scholars had arguments among themselves about this, many of which were played out in the context of 16th century Spain. And there were natural law scholars saying, well, they're not really human. They don't seem to have the capacity for reason. Uh, therefore, uh, we can treat them in certain ways that we wouldn't treat other people. And other natural law scholars said, no, these people are clearly rational beings. They clearly have the capacity for reason. They clearly exhibit in different ways, different forms of uh, reason. We recognize and therefore we may not treat them as things to be simply used and exploited by others. Uh, so these are the interesting things, I think, that emerge over time, or even things like in the realm of international law, right? So as time has gone on, natural law thinkers have had to deal with things like you've had a transition away from medieval political arrangements towards the emergence of the modern sovereign state. Well, natural law thinkers have had to think about what does this mean for how natural law conceives of international law and international order? So in that sense, Natural law, as I mentioned right at the beginning, is very strong on these moral absolutes about what you may not do. But as a developing tradition, as a tradition that's grappling with different and new questions over time, there's always considerable debate going on within natural law circles about how one ought to act in light of different conditions. So this is a living tradition. And as you point out, this is also a very broad tradition that crosses boundaries of time, of nation, of, of, of faith. There are people of many faith traditions, or none at all, who have been natural law theorists. Now, in your book, St. Thomas Aquinas looms particularly large in your explanation of natural law theory there. What makes him a sort of indispensable figure to the natural law tradition and, and someone that even people who might not necessarily be Roman Catholics can appreciate? Well, Aquinas is, of course, the reference point for anyone who's interested in studying natural law, even if they disagree with the very idea of natural law. It's very difficult to get away from the figure of Thomas Aquinas. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that he was the Western scholar who was very much engaged in wrestling with the ideas of Aristotle, which became very, uh, very, very widespread in the 11th and 12th century. And uh, after a period in which they had sort of disappeared from considerable part of Western European reflection upon these types of questions. It never disappeared, by the way, in the Eastern, in the Eastern Roman Empire, I should mention. It was always there. But in the Western, the Western part of, of Europe, the works of Aristotle and the works of Plato had had receded in importance and then they became very important. They because 
the works were studied with more attention. And of course, people like Aquinas and others were confronted with, okay, this is a very significant tradition of thought. How do we reconcile these, these clear insights into truth that were produced by people who were, for the most part, people like Aristotle and Plato, pagans, right? So who had a very different, in many respects, a religious view of the world. So Aquinas is grappling with these ideas, intellectually speaking, and then trying to apply many of these ideas to some of the contemporary issues that surrounded him. And they ranged from political questions to uh, economic questions to legal questions. And he did so in a very, very systematic way. So his, uh, his magnus opus, of course, many people will know as the Summa Theologiae, it's an enormous work, but it really is the culmination of Aquinas's thinking about these issues. It was written also, it's important to remember, for people who were studying for the Catholic priesthood, but also for people who were uh, interested in the relationship between theology on the one hand and revelation, uh, the, the revelation to the Jewish and Christian people on the one hand, but who are also interested in philosophical questions as well. And Aquinas does this in an extremely systematic way. What's also important about Aquinas is that he was very aware that there were people from other religious traditions who were grappling with some of these issues. So we're not just talking about people like Plato and Aristotle and Stoic philosophers. We're also talking about people like Maimonides, right? So the great Jewish uh, philosopher who was born in uh, Spain when it was controlled by the Moors, who lived a considerable part of his life in the Muslim world. And people like Aquinas were very aware that there were people from other religious traditions grappling with these things. There were Muslims who were grappling with some of the insights of Aristotle uh, and Plato. And there, of course, there were Eastern Orthodox thinkers uh, who had long been grappling with these questions. So Aquinas, in a way, is a type of bridge for many of these different traditions to come into conversation with each other, all of whom have slightly and sometimes significantly different conceptions of what the nature of God, the nature of revelation, uh, the nature of what's authoritative and what's not authoritative when it comes to religion. They're all grappling with these questions and they're all asking, okay, well, we believe these religious things, but we also believe that reason has the capacity to know these universal truths. What does this mean for our conception of God? What does this mean for how we bring together theology on the one hand and philosophy on the other? And then how do we apply these things to questions like what's the proper order of government? What is the role of the state in the market? What is the question? How should we address questions like prices? Uh, what do we think about questions of money? What do we think about questions of commerce? What do we think about how states interact with each other? So Aquinas, because he does this so systematically, and he does so in a way that brings together many of these particular traditions, is, has, is essentially indispensable when it comes to thinking about these things. And I think really from Aquinas onwards, much natural law theory is a extension of his thought. And that, by the way, is not just true in the Roman Catholic world. I think you find that in among Protestant thinkers who, on these issues, on Eastern Orthodox Christians who have written about these issues, but also Jews and Muslims who have written about these questions. 
And I think in that sense, natural law is this living tradition of a conversation over time about what does right reason require from us as we act and how do we relate that to whatever it is we believe to be divine revelation. So Aquinas serves as this bridge to integrate the theory itself in some ways and to bring different strands of that tradition in dialogue and in synthesis. Now, one of the ways that maybe we could bridge the thinking of modern people to natural law might be natural rights, which many more people are familiar and more comfortable talking about today. Um, you know, these would be, you know, we think about, you know, natural rights in the tradition of the American founding in terms of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We think about movements for rights, like the civil rights movement. What is the relationship between natural law on the one hand and, and natural rights on the other? Well, I'm glad you raised that because that is, of course, a very contemporary issue insofar as everyone uses the language of rights today, uh, regardless really of where they sit on the political spectrum. And the language and concepts of rights plays a significant role, particularly in American political and legal discourse, uh, not least because it was the idea of natural rights was so prominent in the founding of the United States. So, uh, and many people have often seen natural rights claims and natural law claims as somehow being uh, somehow different to each other. But one of the things I try and point out in the book is that the first conceptions of what we would recognize as natural rights today really do emerge with thinkers like Aquinas, but also uh, thinkers in the tradition of what's often called uh, late scholasticism or second scholasticism. So these are uh, members of religious orders, such as the Society of Preachers, the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, as they're known today, and the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, as, as they're called today, as well as thinkers in Northern Europe who are overwhelmingly Protestant by this time, who are also grappling with some of these questions. And I think you find in these thinkers the first strong, robust conceptions of rights as we would generally recognize them today, as things that are owed to certain people by the nature of whatever it is that they are owed. So natural law, I think, is really the incubator of the idea of rights, or at least a specific conception of rights. So I think this is, this is extremely important when you look at the development of international law, which I think in many respects takes on its modern form in the 16th and 17th century, and it's primarily natural law thinkers people like Francisco Suarez or Domingo de Soto or people like uh, the Dutch thinker, the Dutch Protestant thinker, Hugo Grotius, or Samuel uh, von Pufendorf, who's a German natural law thinker, or Emir de Vattel, who's really the father in many respects of modern international law, who's very much a natural law thinker and is very much a, a, a Protestant Christian. So this is where I think that the idea of rights, as we understand it today, acquires such traction. And I think there's actually, I could be wrong, but isn't there a statue of Francisco Suarez outside the, the, um, 
United Nations building, right? <laughs> right, And that's there for a reason. It's there for a reason because he's recognized as playing such a significant development of what we would understand to be human rights today. And I think it's fair to say that up until maybe the 19, late 1950s, 1960s, when most people talked about human rights, there was an implicit natural law framework informing it. Now, from the 1950s onwards, I think you start to see the idea of rights and natural law become much more separated out to the point whereby some people would argue that rights have nothing to do with natural law. People see the two things as being intention. But there were scholars uh, in the second half of the 20th century, people like Jacques Maritain uh, or my mentor, John Finnis, who did, I think, sterling work in reintegrating the idea of rights back into uh, particular theories of natural law. So I think it's perfectly feasible to talk about natural rights in the way that uh, some of the founders did in the context of natural law. And I think if you look at many of those thinkers, even someone like Jefferson, who is, I think, uh, a sort of deist in some respects, a bit of an Epicurean, but I don't think there's much doubt that when he uses the language of natural rights, there is a type of natural law framework informing it. And with some of the other founders, someone like, say, James Wilson, who was a uh, Scottish-born uh, lawyer and philosopher who was maybe the most articulate and prominent defender of the idea of natural law, made it very clear that the rights that they spoke of were drawn from this wider, deeper tradition of natural law. And I don't see how you can talk about natural rights without some type of natural law framework in the background. And I think if you look at the American founding, you look at some of the different writers and thinkers of the time, it's at, at a minimum, it's an implicit assumption that they're relying upon. So one of the most tangible sort of legacies of natural law thinking and the experience of ordinary people is this sort of rights talk, which is, you know, which which can easily be synthesized with that earlier natural law tradition. What are some other parts of that natural law tradition of thinking about maybe like uh, questions of justice and law and politics that are that are that are, you know, of course, related to the natural rights questions, but 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 talk about uh, sort of politics and, and law in a way that might be less intuitive to, to, to modern folks. Yes. Well, I think for natural law thinkers have thought a great deal over time about different modes of justice. Let's call them that modes of justice. And by that, I mean things like that there are different types of justice that are applied to different problems, different conditions. And you find this in Thomas Aquinas, where he talks about legal justice, legal justice, which is another way of describing the common good, the common good of a given political community. Another phrase he uses for that is general justice. So legal justice and general justice function as the same. And then he argues that from that you derive questions of justice that surround 
um, freely entered into agreements with each other, what we call contracts today, and that's subject to what he calls commutative justice, the demands of what the, the free promises I make to another person that, that they make to me that form an agreement. And this is what this, those types of human interactions fall into the realm of commutative justice. And then there's the area of what's called distributive justice. And distributive justice is about fairness in how, as the word implies, the goods of this world are distributed among the, the people of today and the people of the future. So when I talk when I say distributive justice, a lot of people think, well, that's sort of just equalization and egalitarianism. No, it's not. It's actually about assessing things like need, but also merit, but also responsibility. So you start to see that, okay, when we're talking about distributive justice, it's not simply a question of what people need. It's also a question of, for example, who's taken more risks, who's taken undertaken more responsibility for, say, a business enterprise, or um, who merits, because they've worked harder than others, more of the pie than others. So these modes of justice, I think, are very important for distinguishing the different types of justice that apply for different types of relationships. And it also warns us that we have to be careful about applying the wrong mode of justice to the, a particular type of agreement. So when it comes to things like contracts, you generally don't get into details of distributive justice. Um, uh, you focus mainly on the demands of commutative justice. But what's also important, I think, to keep in mind is that in everyday life, courts, for example, make decisions that are guided by commutative and, and, and distributive and legal justice all the time. A great example is bankruptcy, right? Because on one level, that involves assessing who made what promises to who in the context of a given con contract. But it also, bankruptcy law also involves focus upon things like, well, uh, what are the questions of need at work here? What are the questions of uh, merit? Who has taken responsibility? Who hasn't? So when we see this and we look at this, we start to see that natural law conceptions of justice are built into the workings of our legal systems in ways that we often don't recognize, but we would quickly recognize if they were taken away from us. Absolutely. So it gives natural law gives us an account of justice that can help inform our politics, but is not limited to a strictly sort of legal positivism, a strictly it makes room for those those prudential judgments and those and those and those differences that naturally over uh, you know come into a society and need to be reconciled in some way. In what ways are you comfortable talking about this in terms of, you know, uh, social justice? Um, how, is, how is this similar and how is this different from sort of modern conceptions of social justice? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and in fact, uh, when I was writing this book, uh, the people who – the Fraser Institute who asked me to write it – they actually suggested maybe we need a whole chapter on the very subject of social justice. And I said, well, I could do that. But I think for in terms of natural law theory, natural law theory has a pretty 
clear definition of what social justice is. And it turns out that it's basically what Aquinas called legal and justice. So what do we mean by this? Legal and general justice, or what in contemporary terms in the natural law tradition is understood to be social justice, are all the conditions that exist within a given political community that are necessary for human flourishing. So things like rule of law, things like stable property rights, things like law and order, things like the capacity of the state to defend its citizens against external aggression, but also people intent from within on disrupting or destroying the social order. But what's interesting about this is that this conception of social justice that arises from natural law thinking also makes it very clear that there are limits to what the government and the state can and should do when it comes to promoting this conception of social justice. And the reason is, as I mentioned back at the beginning of our conversation, natural law takes free choice and free will very, very, very seriously. It affirms these things, free choice and free will, as being real. They're not imaginary things. We actually really do make free choices, and we have to make free choices if we're going to flourish, if we're going to flourish, because you can't flourish unless you're making free choices for the good. No one can really coerce you into do that. The law can nudge you in particular directions. It can certainly tell you that there are certain things you should never do. Uh, but it also tells us that we need to give people space, individuals and non-state communities, the space in order to make these free choices. Because the end, the goal of social justice is human flourishing. And human flourishing occurs when we make free choices for the good. The other thing that the natural law conception of social justice introduces into the discussion is something we talk a great deal about at the Acton Institute, which is the principle of subsidiarity. And subsidiarity is the recognition that people need to be assisted in making free choices for the good. All of us re require some form of assistance, whether it's just, um, whether it's a family whether it's a religious organization, whether it's the state providing basic uh, guarantees of rule of law, et cetera. But subsidiarity also is, is also the freedom principle, that you need to make free choices. You can't force people to choose the good. You can stop them from doing evil, but even there, natural law says that there are limits to what the state can do, even in that, that dimension as well, because it says very clearly that that. Um, there are particular types of good that, that are private goods, and they are not the immediate concern of the state. So let me give you a very practical example. We don't, we don't in uh, most countries, in fact, we've never done this in any Western country, we've never prohibited lying per se, right? So we've there's no society in which we've said any form of lying is going to be punished by the state. Right, and people lie all the time. <laughs> people lie all the time, but what the what what natural law does tell us is is that lying, when it involves things like contracts, or when it moves into the public realm, as in, for example, court cases where people are obliged to swear on oath that they will tell the truth, 
then the law does prohibit those forms of lying because those forms of lying are deemed to be extremely damaging to the conditions that we call the common good that allow human flourishing. So when you look at it this way, you start to see that natural law's conception of social justice is very, very different from, let's say, uh, what you might find uh, a Rawlsian liberal in the way that they talk about social justice, which is really, I think, a particular form of understanding distributive justice. doesn't say very much about communitive justice, Rawlsian liberalism. It's all about distributive justice. And that's a very different understanding of social justice than you find in the natural law tradition. It's 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 sort of an antisocial. Um, it it collapses the 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 plurality and the diversity found in society into a particular type of relationship, one among many that's actually found in society. No, that's extremely helpful. Um, we talked about natural law as a living tradition. We've talked about the way that this way of thinking and talking is foreign to a lot of everyday people. But there's still communities of scholars, people involved in law, politics, economics, that are using this method of inquiry, this way of approaching reasoning towards the good today. What are some of the things, some of the current sort of developments, controversies, advances that you see in natural law today? Well, that's that's an interesting question because I think it's fair to say there's, there's a couple of things. One is the something we mentioned before, the engagement of the idea of rights from a natural law standpoint. As we talked about before, the idea of rights and natural law really went hand in hand for a very long period of time. It was a developing tradition, but there's no question that it went hand in hand. And then really from the late 1950s onwards, the two things became separated out. And I think there's a a concerted effort by a good number of natural law scholars to bring these things back together so, so that you do provide rights with the type of philosophical, robust philosophical foundation that it's not clear, for example, that legal positivism can give to the idea of rights. So that's that's one area. A second thing, of course, is that uh, we live in societies in which there uh, there is profound disagreement today about things ranging from when does life begin to what's the just distribution of resources in society, uh, uh, what constitutes a human being. There's all sorts of these are these are very profound differences. And it's fair to say that a lot of those differences are formed by different religious convictions, but also very different philosophical convictions, whether they are informed by religious or secular thinking. So there's profound disagreement. One of the things that I, I, I would argue that many natural law scholars have tried to do is to reestablish natural law as a universal way of arguing about and then making decisions about what is the right course of action because natural law rests on the premise that all human beings have reason, all human beings can know what is good, all human beings can certainly know what 
is evil. And in fact, Thomas Aquinas, he said this himself. If you go, and I quote him, there's a long quote in the book where I, I draw this out. And he basically says, if you're talking with, say, the Jewish people, then you should be talking about the, the Hebrew scriptures. If you're talking with uh, um, what he calls heretics, you should use references to revelation that they accept and believe. But he says, if you're talking to people who don't have any conception of these things, then you rely upon reason. You, you appeal to universal reasons. And that, I think, is what a good number of natural law thinkers have been trying to do, certainly from the 1980s onwards, is to try and reestablish natural law as a universal language for uh, arriving at decisions and agreement about what should be done and what should not be done. So that's the second thing. So we've got the rights, we've got the reestablishment of how do we deal with the fact of pluralism. Natural law scholars are working on that. And of course, natural law scholars are often responding to very immediate questions. And uh, we see this, for example, in the area of bioethics. Natural law scholars are heavily involved in that discussion. And that's a relatively new discussion in many respects. And so natural law thinkers have been very prominent in articulating particular ways of thinking about bioethical questions. And when it comes to questions of things like uh, religious liberty, for example, natural law scholars have invested a great deal of time in explaining why religious liberty needs to be grounded upon certain goods and that religious liberty protects believers and non-believers alike. So those are some examples. What's interesting, I think, is that uh, economic questions have been engaged more marginally by natural law thinkers. Uh, and to the extent that they have engaged them, it's been usually in terms of these categories of distributive, legal, and a commutative justice. And I think there's a big area of conversation that needs to be further opened. And, you know, we do this a lot at the Acton Institute between the realm of the social sciences, particularly the social science of economics and natural law theory. Because as people like uh, Joseph Schumpeter, you know, the, the, the author of um, The History of Economic Analysis, he says that most of the basic concepts that were so brilliantly systematized in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations were not new discoveries. Most of these things had been worked out by uh, natural law thinkers over a long period of time but they were never put down in a very systematic way. And what Smith does in many respects is bring these things together with a new particular conception of human psychology. But most of the things, when it, whether it concerns things like, things like prices or the workings of market exchange or the unintended consequences of government intervention in the economy, many of these things had been worked out by natural law thinkers a long time beforehand. So... I want to leave with a more sort of immediate question with natural law. Um, there, there, um, this, uh, this book is freely available at the Fraser Institute's website. We will put up a link to that. At the end of that book, you have a helpful list of recommended readings for further things to go after um, in your pursuit of this knowledge. And there's, there's some helpful videos on the Fraser Institute website as well. What are the what are what's something that the ordinary person can take? You know, let's say they're not involved in legal controversies, they're not involved in in sort of the work of 
of trying to rethink sort of economics, but just uh, the, the normal sort of Christian layman, what is something that they can take away from this tradition of reasoning towards the good and apply in sort of a concrete way to their everyday lives to uh, enrich, uh, to help uh, further their own flourishing? Well, I think one thing that natural law does is that even though natural law doesn't depend upon belief in God, that's very important. People forget that. Natural law purports to be self-evident claims about reason and the nature of truth. But natural law also points to the reasonability of believing that there is a God. It points to this, this conclusion pretty clearly, and that's something that I think that religious believers, whether they are Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, should take some have some confidence in because you know often religion is seen as the realm of the irrational, the realm of superstition, the realm of the mystical, etc. And one of the things that natural law tells us is that uh, belief in God, belief in a first cause, as Aristotle described it, is in fact far more reasonable than the alternatives of agnosticism or atheism. So that's one thing. It's very important to, to, to take – natural law tells us that we can take the idea that faith and reason go together very seriously and there's a arguments for believing why this is the case. So that's the first thing. The second thing I, I would say is that natural law provides us with some very clear uh, guidelines for how we should act in everyday life, particularly something we mentioned at the beginning these moral absolutes, that there are things that we should never do, no matter how attractive or how, how compelling the, the, the uh, mitigating circumstances might be. In other words, it puts down guardrails that help ensure us that uh, we don't go off the reservation when it comes to living a good life. But it also takes us beyond that. So that's a sort of – natural law reminds us there are these bare minimums of don't do evil, don't do bad things, don't actively choose evil. But it also tells us that there are numerous ways in which we can engage the goods of human flourishing that actually add up to a very pluralistic society. In other words, it reminds us that no matter what our work is, no matter how humble or how exalted our work is in the eyes of society, that everyone can flourish, be they a, a janitor or a statesman, that everyone can flourish in the conditions they find themselves in the according to whatever vocation it is they're being called to. And they can do so by choosing the good, consistently choosing the good, developing these habits of virtue. We haven't talked much about virtue, but the idea of virtue is very important to the idea of, of, of natural law and what human flourishing looks like. So in that sense, natural law provides sense to how we can live a good life, no matter what it is we're actually called to be. And that that's, I think, something that's very ennobling and reminds us that through reason, we can recognize certain things as always being good and true and that we can always strive for these things, regardless of whether we are a street cleaner or whether we are president of the United States. 
Sam, thank you so much for being with us today on Acton Line. Again, we will have links to the book and accompanying materials uh, uh, at the uh, Fraser Institute website in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Sam, for being with us. Thank you, Dan. It's always good to talk with you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja. 